you can't sit on a Monday and plan exactly what's going to happen and where you'll be on Friday. There is so much, um, you know, chaos in everything about life, so much entropy. So when you experience that firsthand, I think then it makes you more accepting of the risk because you start to be able to understand risk and be able to manage around risk and know the really understand all of the things that could go right and that could go wrong, but you still got to move forward and you still got to make the push. I think, you know, some people are kind of paralyzed by a fear of risk and a fear of change. Um, and entrepreneurship is probably not for you. You know, being the CEO, I've been the CEO of uh, five companies now over the last 12 years. And it's a lonely position at times. You know, when things are going great, it's like a success has many fathers, right? That's the expression again, back to the, the patriarchal influence there, but success has many fathers and failure is a, a lonely child. Welcome to The In Factor. I'm Rebecca White, and I'm talking with Dr. Joe Weber today, the founder and CEO of Atlas Jobs. As a serial entrepreneur, experienced CEO and board member, and an expert in quantum physics, Joe brings a wealth of knowledge, experience, and expertise to our conversation. Her current company, Atlas Jobs, is a game-changing, white-label, talent engagement and management platform that is revolutionizing the way organizations position themselves as employers of choice. With a web and mobile app that simplify talent acquisition, Atlas plays an important role in addressing today's job-matching challenges. Beyond her role at Atlas Jobs, Jo is a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, a chartered chemist, and a recognized leader in the tech sector. Her passion for simplifying complex processes through software is evident in her numerous patents and impactful work. Join us as we explore Joe's entrepreneurial journey her insights on talent engagement, and what she has learned as a female thought leader operating in a male-dominated industry. Well, Joe, thank you for joining me today on The In Factor. Well, thank you for having me today, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this. And, uh, you know, I know you've got a, a background in quantum physics, so I don't know how much of that I can, uh, I can talk about, but I'm really excited to just learn more about you and what you're doing. I know your company now is Atlas Jobs, uh, but I'd love to start by finding out a little bit more about you. Uh, you, you grew up in London, I think, and you're in Los Angeles now. But tell us how you got from um, a young girl growing up in London, uh, in a, I guess, an interest in physics and, in, and all the way out into L.A. and running a white label uh, job matching company. <laughs> well, I'll try to give you the abbreviated version. But, um, yeah, I grew up in the U.K. I grew up in London and I grew up in um, and this is, I've got kids now myself, and this is something I think about a lot. I grew up in a family with no money. My father fought in both world wars. He was, it, I was seven, he was 70 when I was born. Um, incredible story, but he died shortly after. So it left my mum to bring me up and we really didn't have money as a family. So I, I kind of learned to hustle um, at a young age. I was running two or three jobs when I was like 13 years old. So I, I kind of came through very much having to work to live. Um, and then I went to university and I wasn't going to go to university, but a teacher, um, my biology teacher, actually threw me in a car and said, you're not going to spend all your life doing this. Let's go to university. He helped me get a grant, got me to university. And then I ended up uh, doing a PhD, saying I enjoyed it so much. I did a PhD in quantum physics, as you said. And when I was doing that, I was running these calculations that Albert Einstein never thought would, was possible. So Einstein calcu in his, he calculated in his mind 
that it would take four man lifetimes to run one of the calculations that I was running. There was, they were so intense. Um, the thing was, he never foresaw the advent of computers. Right. So my calculations were what he was really wanting to try and run to really help him understand um, the universe um, and bring his theories all together. He couldn't run them. We were running them. It was taking, I was running them on a VAX. It was taking about four days on a VAX and I could run it if I could get access to the supercomputer, the Cray in London. I could run it all in about four hours. But that's kind of how I started out running these amazing calculations. And then I worked with Shell in Sittingbourne. And I basically created a computer program out of Fortran. It shows you how long ago that was. But I took the calculations and turned it into 3D molecules. So we could actually, in the early silicon graphics screen, we could actually get a view, a three-dimensional representation of these molecules. So it was like using, this was the early days of theoretical chemistry. Um, it was a fascinating time. And as I say, just being able to really complete the work, some of the work that Albert Einstein wanted to do, um, but was unable to do because computers weren't there, weren't an option. And I think it really just shows you the power of computing. And, you know, for me, I believe a big purpose of computers is they're here to make our life easier. So they're here to take complex processes and make them simpler for humans. And when we overly complicate things with a computer program, we failed because it should be to make our life much easier. Yeah. Wow. So I love this story. So you have been um, in the, you know, we talk about STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so um, you've been in the STEM space for quite some time and it's been, it's been challenging for a lot of women um, actually in that space. Do you have any, any insights, things you've learned and stories along the way being a, you know, a woman in that space that, that, you know, I, I mentioned, I think before we started that I went to Virginia Tech, which was he heavily male students, a lot of engineering. And so yeah. I went through some of the same thing myself. I don't know if you've got any, any, um, insights on that. Well, when I was uh, studying for my PhD, I spent some time at Oxford University and there was the 21st anniversary quantum theory conference was held. So I went for that. And the photo from that is just fascinating to look at it these days, the way the way people were dressed. So when I got there, it was like a bunch of guys, as you could imagine. And as in the day, a bunch of white guys, right? Um, so there was like zero diversity. Uh-huh. And I spotted this other woman across the room. So I kind of went over and I'm like, hi, you know, I'm Joan. Anyway, she turned out she was the secretary. So there were no, there were no, other, women. There were no other women. So we went for dinner that night in one of Oxford University's grand halls, grand dining rooms. It's a big group of us, big, big group. And they decided to entertain us while we're having dinner with a magic show. So the magician comes onto the stage and he goes, I need a female assistant. So all of the guys at this point had figured out I was the only female. So they're like shoveling me off to the stage. So off I go, I sit in a chair, you know, I hold an apple or whatever it was. And then I, I get up to leave because his act is done, he's gone. And then the next guy, I go to sit down, the next guy comes on, he's a magician. He goes, I need a female assistant. Well, I spent the whole night, I didn't eat. I spent six, there were six magicians came one after the other. So I spent the whole bloody time on the stage with these magicians doing this goofy stuff. But I think what it really showed me was just how few women there were, you know, in this field. And there was no reason for it. It wasn't like it required heavy lifting or anything. You know, it was, it's all brain work, right? Which women can do just as well as men. So it was... But you could see the barriers were hard because it wasn't a very welcoming environment for many women coming in. Um, so, you know, it was interesting in the early days, kind of setting out like that. And that's probably why I did not stay in academia. A lot of people who do a PhD in quantum physics stay in the very academic world, the research world. And, you know, part of me would have loved to have done that, but it didn't feel like it was it was where I needed to be. And to be honest with you, at the time in England, it there was a it's different and it's very different now, but I think there was a real problem being female in a male dominated environment. I went to work for a company 
um, a company gave my university a computer system and I, the dean said, can you put it in? Because you know, at the time, a lot of people didn't know about computers, so I put it in. And then that company said, come and work for us and do what you just did, but travel all over the world to do it and we'll pay you. I'm like, oh, okay, you kind of had me at travel, but pay me as well. Good stuff. So I went to work for this company, but I could see there was an, there was definitely an issue. All of the bosses were, were men and there was an opportunity and the opportunity was in America. And I came to America. I was going to come for six months and uh, make a load of money, set up the office and then go home. And of course, kind of fell in love with the country. You're still here. (laughs) Well, that's great for us because uh, you've added a lot of value, I'm sure, in so many ways. So tell us a little bit about your journey here in the United States. So so did you come to California immediately or did you work your way across the country or how did that work? I love California, right? I just, I mean, this is such a beautiful country here. Um, But I started in Boston, which is also gorgeous right yes um so i loved the boston area i was up uh, you know a town called marblehead which is just coming from england i could walk to the beach in the summer and my buddies would come pick me up and go skiing in the winter which is not something i'd really done so it was a great area uh, to start I started with a company called fizens that became acquired and was known as thermo and they're still around today in a big way they're the world's largest supplier of analytical equipment. So if any of your listeners are working in a lab, you're probably using some of the, the, the Thermo Fisher kit in mm-hmm. some way. They make everything from mass spectrometers, X-rays, all the kind of analytical te- technology you're using. And it's, you know, it's good stuff. You know, it's good. It's a, it's a high, high, high mark. So I ended up, um, I started working for them and then uh, they wanted to ship me back after about five years. They wanted me to go back and run development for the company which at the time was very much in the UK. Um, and I did not want to go back. So at that point I left, I, I was picked up by an, another company. A friend of mine had already gone to this other company and I called him and I said, Mark, they want me to go home. And he was like, do you want to go? And I'm like, mm, no, not now. I don't, I don't want to go. And he's like, well, would you come and work for our company? And uh, so I ended up jumping and going to work for the company that my friend was, was with. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm really curious. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- there are, um, there have been criticisms. Have you spent any time in Silicon Valley? Because there have been criticisms in the tech community and uh, about not having enough women in that space. Do you think we've come a long way here in the United States? Do you think we still have work to do? It's a good question, Rebecca. I actually think Silicon Valley is quite hostile towards women in many ways. Um, it's very much a boys club, you know, with, I, I think things are changing a bit right now. You know, a lot of startups are failing, um, but there's definitely been a bit of a culture there of guys could come in and say whatever and get funding and, um, you know, there def- definitely was a culture. And I think a lot of investors, I mean, it, the, the way the system worked was a lot of investors would look at it and think, I'm going to make nine bets. And, you know, if five of them pay off, I'm in good shape. So it was this kind of numbers game. Um, and I think for women, I, I there's a, a the first fighter pilot in the United States, Car- Car- Carrie Lorenz, Carly Lorenz, uh, I have some her name something like close to that. I met her a few years ago, and she was telling me this story, um, and it was really interesting. Her, her story is a very interesting. If you ever get a chance, you should interview her. She's great. Her story is really interesting. But she said, "You know what?" She said, "If there's a job, a job opportunity, a man will look at it, and if he can do about thirty percent of a job, he'll put his hand in the air and say, I, I can do that.' With a woman, she has to think she can do one hundred and twenty percent of it." before she'll put her hand in the air, right? And I do think a lot of that is true. So a lot of times when you're dealing in entrepreneurship, which I know you are, and you're, you're a professor in this, I know you've seen this. Um, I think a lot of times men will be like, yeah, you know, even though I don't know, but entrepreneurship is risk. And I think, you know, women have to be able to be comfortable with the risk in the same way that men are comfortable with the risk. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And I think, you know, a lot of our listeners are young, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, men and women. And it, um, I think it's good to talk about these things because risk is a, it's a vital part of, you know, the whole entrepreneurial journey. And that kind of brings me around, you know, we've talked about your career, which is, um, you know, you you went the academic route as I did, and uh, you know we we became uh, you know we achieved a lot that route, and then you worked for corporate, and um, so I'm really curious about your entrepreneurship and your entrepreneurial mindset and your risk orientation. Did is that something that you always had? Um, you know, you you mentioned early on that you were highly motivated. Um, and you were always doing odd jobs to survive. Do you think that also influenced the way that you look at the world and, and uh, you know, sort of your entrepreneurial so. drive? I, th- I think so. You know, I think one of the things that you learn when you're, when you're young and you're trying to, but I mean, we were just, I was trying to make enough money to survive. My mom wasn't working. We had no money coming in. So we were just, I was just trying to make it so the household could survive, the pair of us could survive. Um and when you do it, like, and you start doing different jobs and trying different things, you quickly realize that life isn't sequential. It, it, it doesn't work. You can't sit on a Monday and plan exactly what's going to happen and where you'll be on Friday. There is so much, um, you know, chaos in everything about life, so much entropy. So when you experience that firsthand, I think then it makes you more accepting of the risk because you start to be able to understand risk and be able to manage around risk and know the really understand all of the things that could go right and that could go wrong but you still got to move forward and you still got to make the push i think you know some people are kind of paralyzed by a fear of risk and a fear of change um and entrepreneurship is probably not for you you know being the ceo I've been the CEO of uh, five companies now over the last 12 years. And it's a lonely position at times. You know, when things are going great, it's like a success has many fathers, right? That's the expression. Again, back to the, the patriarchal influence there. But success has many fathers and failure is a, a lonely child. And what's what happens is uh, when you look at a company, when I look at like my very first company, which was a big success, at any day in the three years between it being nothing to a big success, on any given day, things could have been going really well or really badly. And it, it fluctuates in a smaller company. When you're doing this, you have incredible highs and you also have lows where you're sitting there going, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to run out of money. You know, all of this kind of this stuff. So I think. It is probably this isn't for everybody, um, but the for me, um, building things, working with innovative, smart people to make a difference, to make things happen, makes it all worthwhile. I, I you, you saw earlier, she just walked out. My uh, Kate, who I work with in the office here, my assistant, um, you know, twenty five years old, whip smart, and super entrepreneurial, looking at what's always looking at what's the best solution what's the best way forward not looking at oh you know tonight i'm going to go to the movie theater or you know really enjoying the job and the task and i love working with people like that who are enjoying what we're doing enjoying what we're building we love our customers you know we customers who come on the journey this isn't that special when somebody says you know what i'm willing to come on your journey with you and you know what? i'm going to give you a bit of money to fund it as well that's the most special thing that can happen. So, you know, for me, that's that's the life. That's, that's why I, I love doing this. It is about people, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and surrounding yourself with really good and smart people. So uh, let me ask you about the, you said five, you've started five companies. So could you talk us through a little bit of that? How that, how, how did you move from corporate, from university to corporate to entrepreneur? So, yeah, and I haven't started five. I've run five. Run five, okay. So I guess, yeah, I started in corporate with Thermo, which 
was a really good, I think it's a good place to start to see how a large corporation operates, just to see how really how business operates. And then uh, when they tried to get me to move back to the UK and I didn't want to go, I quit. And I went to work for a very small company. And that was kind of good because when I was, when I first got there, I was hired to run implementation, but there was a problem with sales. And the CEO sat me down and said, Joe, it costs $200,000 a month to keep the lights on for our little company. So you need to sell, we're moving you to sales. You have to sell, you're the only sales, but there's nobody else. You're the sales department. And you have to sell a minimum of $200,000 a month or we're gonna be out of business. It was a ton of pressure. You know, I really felt that, but did it, you know, and did really well there, stayed there, I think five years, and then realized that nice company, great guys, but it, I wasn't going anywhere. There was no uh, equity. The equity was completely held by this one individual. So there was no way I was going to get a piece of ownership or really do anything more in that company. Um, and then I applied for, you know, I put my resume out for a couple of jobs. And wouldn't you know it, one of the jobs was actually I applied I applied for the CIA without realizing it. <laughs> <laughs> you ever see these adverts that are about going to foreign countries and setting up a, a corporation and operating? So that was, um, I, don't, I probably shouldn't say too much, but anyway, I didn't take that one. That, and this is in the day where you'd apply to two jobs and you get two interviews, right? Mm-hmm. These days. The second one I, I took, and it was working for a smaller company. Um, but uh, in a more senior position, and I learned a lot. That gave that was my MBA. That you know, just in this smaller company, I'd already been in the really small company where I could kind of see how, you know, in a large company, nobody's saying to you, "We need two hundred thousand a month to keep the lights on." They need ten million a month to keep the lights on. But anyway, um, so that that was that was good for me, and I got in there and. After a while, I was I was the head of sales and operations, and then after a while, the uh, board asked me to take over as CEO. So that was my first gig as CEO. Incredibly supportive investors, one of whom is an investor in my company today. Just some sometimes in life, you meet some really good people, and I was because it can can be different. I was fortunate that my first gig as a CEO, I had an incredibly supportive board um, with good human beings. Yeah. I love, uh, you know, I, there's so much there, really. I love that you got a got training in sales because sales is so important as an entrepreneur. You know, you're always, you always got to be thinking about that pitch and telling your story and selling. Um, and then, then you got your MBA with your next company. And so... Oh. Virtual. I didn't vir- actually... Right. Exactly. Your virtual MBA. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but you learned about business and and more about how the, how all of that works, and then now today you're running um, uh, Atlas Jobs. Tell us how how that company came about and and what is Atlas Jobs? Yeah, so the the company that invested in me back in two thousand and three when I became the CEO of Interface. The lead investor there was a company called LLR out of uh, Philadelphia. Um, and it's probably the biggest uh, investment firm in Philadelphia. And talk about a success story. They started, their first fund was probably 100 million, maybe not even that. They're now into their seventh fund and they've probably got about somewhere between six to 10 billion under investment. Um, and it's the same guys, right? LLR, Lubert, Lair and Ross. So brilliant success story of building a business from scratch, sticking with it. And um, they've just done an incredible job. So when I sold my first company, Howard Ross, the R, um, came to me and he said, you don't have to do this, but if you want to, you could invest with us. We invested with you. Now you can invest and be an LP with us. So I've done that and I've stayed with them and stayed involved with them. I, I sit on the board of one of their companies right now, Edlio, this really, really good um, educational technology company. Um, so, and I've been on that board for about four or five years. So I'm still very much in touch. 
And lead investor in Atlas Jobs is a gentleman by the name of Ira Lubert. Um, he's a bit of a legend in Philadelphia. He is the first L on the LLR. Very su extremely successful man, brilliant guy, actually. I'm learning, even at my age, I'm learning from this guy. Um, and what it was was in 2009, I was talking with Ira and we were looking at building a technology to help people find each other. Because as the world's got bigger and it's got more complicated, how do you meet people? And in many ways, social media is pushing, pulling us apart. It's not bringing us together. So the idea was, could we build a technology that was all about helping people connect based on interests and location? So, you know, I could maybe be in Hermosa Beach down, down here and I'm, I'm new to the area. I'd like to talk to people about real estate or you know, I could be like, I'm looking for somebody to go surfing with. So it can be business or it could be casual connections. I'm going through an airport and I want to watch the Phillies game. Oh, look, there's three people around me. You all like the Phillies. Maybe they, well, let's go and have a drink together and we can watch the game. It was this kind of thing. And we launched it in May 2020. So I'm sorry, March of 2020. Oh, interesting time. <laughs> if you remember, there was something else that happened in March of 2020. Right. So there we are with this, our mission statement was bringing people together. <laughs> and then the pandemic is like, no, stay apart. So we ended up looking at it and saying, well, could we use the same technology instead of bringing people, and the, the product's still there. If anybody, if any of the listeners want to have a look at it, Pod, Pod Network, it's on Atlas, sorry, it's on iOS and Android. You can download it. There's still hundreds of thousands of people using it. It's Remember called Pods, Pods Network? P-O-D. P-O-D. Uh -huh. Pod Network. Right? Pod Network. Hundreds of thousands. You go anywhere. You open up the map, you'll see people around you, right? You can connect them if you want. It's all, it's all working. So that was, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great little product, but the timing was wrong. And I still don't think the timing is quite right. I think we're still, I can, I can hear... They're talking about another wave of COVID. Oh, my goodness. Aren't we, we I know. Had, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't even. But so that's how we started. And then we said, can we take the same approach and apply it to helping people find opportunities? So, you know, when you look at particularly the world of work, a lot of it has been, hey, Fred, I think you should go for this, this management opportunity. And it's one of the reasons why we've ended up with this wobbly equity platform, right? And you mentioned earlier about STEM and women in STEM. Well, my company, STEM Connector, which is part of Pod, we also have a company called STEM Connector. And we do research into the state of DEIA in STEM all the time. And what we do is we look at the percentage of a group in the general population, and then the percentage in STEM. And why this is important is because STEM jobs on average pay 2x what non-STEM jobs do. So when you look at it as wealth distribution and families getting themselves out of poverty, um, being employed on the STEM side of business is a very good way of doing it. And what you find is for women, we make up about 52% of the population right now, but we only make up about 29% of the STEM workforce. So that's where you see that, that inequality start to come in and then you can go through different you know on my company it's a free report if anyone wants to go to stemconnector.com and pull it up it will show you different ethnic groups and their percentage in the in the general population and their percentage in in stem jobs that's really fascinating and, and so interesting i've done a lot of work with uh women in the science fields, helping them think about how to commercialize what they're working on in the bench, on the bench, you know, and taking it to the market. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it's been really fascinating work. I worked with a group out of the University of Oregon called Coach uh, that Jerry Richmond was running. And, um, you know, what I found is so many of those um, women, uh, you know, in particular, the one, that's the group I was working with, um, just just really didn't know the pathway or have the confidence. And so even just a little bit of education and awareness can make a big difference. So I'm really thrilled to hear about the work that you're doing. Um, you know, the, some of it 
through businesses and some of it through other kinds of philanthropy to help um, and, you know, and build that. You know, Rebecca, though, a big, big thing that I could, I've discovered or I could see over the years is the network. Yes, yes. Like, your network is so important. Um, one of the things that we're involved in right now, which is really kind of cool, is uh, the state, the U.S. State Department are working with uh, Deloitte, Google, I think, is going to get involved, S&P are involved, and some other companies, and they're helping. They're using our technology platform because our platform is all about discovery and finding opportunities. So they're working to take people who are willing to mentor in those companies and putting out mentorship opportunities to Afghanistani women, Pakistani women, Indian women. So a lot of these areas where the women really could do with some help, they've got no network. You know, you've got no network, you've got no chance. Yeah, yeah. so much based on the network. It um, is, it is. In everything, you know, I, I listened to this podcast about um, for indie book authors because I've written a couple of books and I'm really interested in this whole thing about doing your own independent marketing because book publishers, quite honestly, don't do a whole lot for you if you're not one of the top book authors out there. And, you know, it's the same thing. You can write an amazing book and a lot of book authors write amazing books books, but they don't want to do the marketing side, you know, and, and the, the reality is networking and marketing, they kind of go hand in hand. You have to communicate with people. Yeah. People have to know you're there. They have yep. to know what's going on and, and that you're there. But, you know, it, uh, on that topic of networking, which I think is really important, I'm curious about your thoughts about how to do that effectively and efficiently because there's only so many hours in a day. And I, I've seen entrepreneurs at both extremes. They try to do everything and they get burned out and worn out. Um, and others that, you know, don't want to come out of their office because they're introverts and they don't want to talk to anybody. So do you have thoughts about that? I mean, I know you and I are just, I mean, I can tell we're both at a little later stages of our career. We've done some things. So you start to build a network by our age. But if you're a college student or a young entrepreneur, do you have thoughts about how to do that as effectively and efficiently as possible? Um, I think there's a lot a lot more opportunities now, right, than, uh, you know, to, to find people. I mean, that was a big part of what pod was all going to be about, is like helping people find sure. each other and connect, right? Um and I, I still think there's a place for pod. You know, we're busy with Atlas Jobs right now, but there's definitely a place in the world for that kind of technology to help people connect. Um, I, I think when you look at, you, you can go crazy. And I have seen some, I think some of the entrepreneurs that you're talking about where, I mean, every night's a party night because they just, and even when I moved to California, my head of sales, we, you know, we, we, one of the companies, um, Virtual Piggy, we started it in Philadelphia, we moved to California, my head of sales is already out here. So I'm, I come out and he's, uh, oh, let me help you find a house. And he's like, I, here's my guy. And I'm like, all right, all right. So we look at this house and he's with me looking at the house. And um, he's like, oh, this is fantastic. It's got a thousand foot deck. Joe, we can have like parties here every night. We can invite, and I'm thinking, no, I've got my kids. <laughs> my house is not a party house. We're not doing this. I've got to have... But, you know, I can see some of the guys, in particular guys, it feels like, you know, they are out the whole time um, and they do a really good job with it. I think one of the stories that I heard I thought was interesting, you know, it's not a lot of money now, but it was at the time. Facebook paid a billion dollars for Instagram. The CEO of Instagram went round on Valentine's Day to Mark Zuckerberg's house and took Mark and his wife, Priscilla, uh, chocolate-covered strawberries as a Valentine's gift. And then he buys his company for a billion dollars. <laughs> it just, I mean, it's the power of the human connection, right? I'm sure it wasn't that one incident, but like some guy working away or girl working away in Southeast Asia somewhere may have a brilliant system, but they don't, they're not going to get into that network. So I think you have to, and as you said, time is, is finite. I think for, there was a certain time in San Francisco and Silicon Valley in particular, and it probably still is 
where you're in, if you're in there, it's very closed. They all know each other. There's a reporter up there called Kara Swisher. I think she does a really good job, but it, it just, actually she's moved now. I think she's moved from it, but she was in the thick of it when it was with Walt Mossberg from the Wall Street Journal. They were, the pair of them were reporting on this on the early days. They did a fabulous interview where they had Steve Jobs and Bill Gates on the stage at the same time. It was just, it was just a great, great interview. Um, but you could see the somewhat um, closed nature of the loop. And it, it's difficult if you're not in that, at the, in that bubble. And investors, as I say, it's a bit of a numbers game. Most investors, it's like nobody got fired for buying IBM, right? That was the old saying. So these investors, well, I'm going to invest with this guy, Fred. He's had five failures with his companies, but he's due for a success. And he's really smart. And all oh my guy, I know him, he's at the club and so on. Easier to do that than bet on somebody out of your system who you don't know. So it is important. You've got to get out there. There are, it's hard, you know, and it's hard to choose it. And you will, I've spent, spent so many hours, so much of my time with people who wasted my time and wasted their time, frankly, because there was, you, you know, it just, they were talking about something that wasn't going to happen or whatever. So it is a, it is a challenge and it's particularly challenge when you're out of the network, you know, it's, I, and that's what I love about actually this mentorship program. Because it's not only the, let me give you advice, it's, oh, you're interested in that? Guess what? You know, there's a load of opportunities over here. Have you seen this? Or have you, it's that, it's that connection piece. Yeah, there's so many things in there, you know, in your in your comments, I think, to to highlight and dig into, you know, people work with people that they like and they trust. So it, it is relationship building. It's not just showing up at every party and being yep. in, you know, being there all the time, because we all know that person. They're everywhere and they're always talking. But, you know, you don't always quite trust that person because they're everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so I think that's that's a, a key point, um, you know, and and the the challenges, you know, that you kind of bring up that things can get pretty incestuous and not being a part of that circle, how hard that can be. But it's kind of interesting because I know some of the research, if you look at men and women, kind of back to that topic, that women, um, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you need a, a large heterogeneous network, you know, a lot of people because it's, it's important. You never know exactly what you're going to need. Uh, but women tend to be very uh, focused on close ties a lot of times. It, it, kind of tends to be their nature to build deeper relationships and men are more comfortable with superficial relationships. And I'm generalizing, but this does come from some research. And so as I've worked with women over the years and, and even with young people, I tell them, you know, it's important um, to think about lots of different and unique ways where you can be uh, connected to people that you might not have been otherwise able to meet. So, you know, for example, when I started networking, I was, I went on to a not-for-profit board and it was a great way to sit around the table with people that I, that would never have answered, um, you know, a call at that time from me or, you know, an email now from someone. So it's, um, you know, I think it's, I think there's lots of different uh, strategies, but it's important to kind of remember those principles. You're building relationships and you have to kind of put yourself out there in some places that, um, you know, that are strategically going to connect you with people that, that might be able to connect you with what you need. And Yeah, I, and, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about nonprofit board. I think that's great. I've, I've sat on about 15 boards and I don't think I regret sitting on anyone, right? I mean, everyone's given me something. So I do think that's a really good idea. I, I remember when, was it 2007? It was when things were kind of getting rough in the economy. And I was on about three or four boards at the time, plus running my own company. But what was great was we were trying to figure out, oh, people, you know, some of the our board members were saying, you know what, Joe, you should cut off the 401k. You know, we've got to cut back expense. And I was able to see what other companies were doing. 
you know, and everybody was kind of expecting this hammer to come down and the economy was going to fall apart. So it is really useful to give you that broader perspective when you're on multiple boards. One thing I'd say, Rebecca, I've never heard somebody explain it the way you did about women going for more tighter connections and men being more loose. I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think in my experience, I've got some very tight connections over the years, people that I really trust. It's not a huge circle, you're right, but some people I completely trust. And what I tend to do is they know me, but they also have their own circles. So what I'll tend to do is if I need something or somebody or some opinion, I'll reach out to that trusted circle who will then reach out. And this happened recently. I, I wanted an agent in Germany and I reached out to my old head of Europe and he could, was like, well, this one, that one, and then we connected to somebody who then connected us to somebody else. Yeah. I think that's great advice because as we both know, a warm introduction, meaning, you know, having someone that knows someone else connect you can make a huge difference. Yeah. So I think that that's really powerful. You know, I want to, I want to spend a few minutes talking about Atlas jobs and what it means to be a white label, um, you know, uh, job search, I guess, company or job match company. What does that mean? And, and I guess the questions that are going to follow that are around, you know, what's going on in our, <laughs> in our environment now, because, you know, I, I, I'm on I'm on some boards, you know, for profit boards now, and I and I talk to a lot of C-suite people, and I know companies are all streamlining and cutting back, and and yet they can't find the employees they need. What? So, you know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So so tell us about Atlas Jobs and what you're doing to kind of fix some of these problems we have right now. Well, I think there's a few things going on. Right, there's still about two million people who didn't return after COVID, right? COVID introduced a whole generation of people who never realized that they could stay at home, eat bonbons and play video games <laughs> it, that they actually could. And we're now trying to get them back into the early workforce. And it's a challenge, right? Um, you hear companies doing layoffs. I think earlier this year, Microsoft laid off 10,000. What you don't hear is that they hired 40,000 last year. And a lot of these layoffs are just because companies, and I'm going to use this word, and I think you'll understand what I mean, even though it's a bit of an odd word to use, companies consume talent inefficiently. And what I mean by that is when you look at something like Microsoft and you look at the 10,000 people, they laid off a lot of people that were working on things like the virtual reality headsets, which let's face it, as much as Mark Zuckerberg would like us to think otherwise, that has not really taken off yet. Oh, artificial worlds, meta meta universe and so on. But so Microsoft really looked at it and said, you know, that division, this is not going as fast as we want. Rather than saying, you know, those skill sets, I bet we could use them somewhere else. They don't, they, they just cut that because it's the most efficient way. Unfortunately, it's the most efficient way for that company to operate, to cut them and then just carry on hiring here. Um, if you look at the hiring figures for someone like, and I'm not picking on Microsoft because I think a lot of companies are doing this, Zuckerberg's called it the year of efficiency this year. Um, so a lot of these companies are making cuts along the way. But if you look at something like Microsoft, the workforce is still way up over what it was at the start of the pandemic. So these companies are increasing the unemployment levels. You know, we've got record low unemployment. Um, if you want a job, you can find a job in this economy. I think that we're struggling still. You know, the companies I'm talking to are, are struggling. They're struggling to get employees. Um, and they're also, I think, you know, one of the things that happened with the pandemic was it got a lot of people thinking. And does my, am I really valuable to this employer? So I think there's, you, you go back to, our fathers' generations working, you know, our parents' generation. A lot of those guys would work, and it was a lot of guys at the time, they worked 20 years in one job or 10-year tenure, right? The average tenure right now is tenure right now is four years, which isn't incredibly low, but it's because there's a bunch of boomers holding it up. When you start to go down below 35, it's under three years is the average tenure. Now, for a company, you just about get somebody productive 
in three years. That's and right. Then gone. Yeah. So this is really bad. I mean, this is really, really tough times. And you've got new technologies coming in. We've got AI. We've got quantum computing. We've got CRISPR. Uh, talking about women in science, those two women, Jennifer D Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier, got the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. That was 2020, I think, as well, for their work on CRISPR. You've got these wonderful new technologies coming into play, new jobs being created. We work with uh, Biomade, which is biomanufacturing engineering, manufacturing, sorry, biomedical manufacturing. And it's not what, uh, or bioindustrial manufacturing, I should say. It's not what you think of in biotech. It's things like using algae to make skis so that they mm. naturally biodegrade rather than it's trying to take plastics out of the supply chain. Mm -hmm. You've got all these wonderful technologies coming in, into place, new jobs being created. I've got a teenager who's scared to death because they don't know what they want to do. And I'm like, when you're 17, unless you, it's, it hasn't changed in 40 years, do you want to be a teacher, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or, <laughs> and that's where the, the thing is, even though the number of jobs has just grown exponentially, we don't do a really good job of showing kids what opportunities are out there. And I also think most universities are struggling at the moment in terms of providing the right education that the kids need to go into the workforce. And I see this firsthand as an employer. I'll get a kid with a really good degree, done really well at school, but log on to the system, right? No bloody clue, right? Have you used Excel? Well, <laughs> you know, just putting them, trying to put them into Salesforce, number one SaaS program on the planet. Nope, never seen it. But I think, you know, there's a big thing here. There's a gap between our education systems and ed educating the future workforce of the opportunities, giving them the tools, cybersecurity. You know, we just don't have enough people on cybersecurity. And yet my daughter at 17, that's not one of the options that's ever been presented to her through the school system as something you could do, or even how, how would you do it? Even if you were interested, how would you do it? So I do think we've got some real kind of issues there. Young people coming through, finishing their education and ending up with like, I'm actually not qualified for anything. Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. I think that's a really valid point. And, uh, you know, as someone in the education space, uh, you know, I know how hard it is to stay aligned with what's going on. You know, in entrepreneurship, we we tend to be a bit more pioneering uh, than the rest of the, the campus in terms of what we're doing. But, um, you know, it's, it's become a really different educational experience now. I mean, we, we integrate our students into, you know, we, we connect them, let me put it that way, with, with practitioners on a much more frequent basis than I ever did when I was in school. And I think that's been, you know, part of our solution to it. But, but I think you make a lot of valid points. And I think the other issue is that technology is changing so rapidly. I mean, we're all scurrying right now trying to figure out how do we deal with chat GPT? You know, our previous models of have students write a paper, uh, you know, doesn't work anymore. So, <laughs> you know, it's too yeah. easy. It's too easy. It's I mean, we, we have to change that up somewhat, you know. And there's, do you know there was a, um, the, uh, this was probably about two or three months ago, I don't know if you heard of it, a, a professor told his students, if I find out that any of you have used ChatGPT to, to do your essays, I'm going to give you a zero. He ended up giving the whole class a zero. Several of them were like, we did not use ChatGPT. And he was like, yes, you did. I took your essay, I put it into ChatGPT, and I said, did you write this? And ChatGPT said yes. <laughs> right? So then I took passages from Shakespeare, put it into ChatGPT, said, did you write this? And ChatGPT said Yes. Yes. <laughs> I've decided ChatGPT GPT can be competently inaccurate. So, um, you know, my my solution's a little different. I'm integrating using ChatGPT because I know they're going to, and they 
they got to figure out a little bit how to use it. So I'm, I'm learning along with them, but it's, I think that, I think it's a challenge for all of us. And, you know, you, you bring up, um, I just have to ask, I mentioned to you my interest in the freelance economy and a lot of STEM workers have, you know, very strong skill sets that are transferable from company to company. And they're choosing not just STEM, but a lot of workers are choosing, um, you know, to work on more of a project by project basis. And I'm just curious at Atlas Jobs, you know, what do you all help with that sort of placement as well? And, and if so or not, either way, you know, how are companies dealing with this um, phenomenon? Yeah, and it's, um, it's interesting, right? And I think, you know, that we've got a, it's a weird time because we've still got so many people working from home and not wanting to give that up. Um, some of them are not wanting to give it up and they're working efficiently and honestly, and others are not wanting to give it up because they're actually running three jobs at the same time, right? So there's there's different kind of kind of areas going on with that. But even before COVID hit, I could see the gig economy taking off. And I think it works well for certain roles. So for graphic designers, right? And I hope my my graphic, I've got this fabulous graphic designer at Atlas Jobs. Everything looks good, right? But I hope she's not listening. But in general, I would say, not you, but everyone else. If I'm a graphic designer in 2023, I think I want to be working as a gig worker because I'm going to get to do so many more different projects. I'm probably going to be able to earn a lot more money. I'm going to be able to control my own time because I can say yes or no to the different projects. I think the only downside, and it's a bit like what you were saying about the books, some people just want to write and then they want somebody else to take care of the sales and marketing. If you're a gig worker, you're in charge of your own sales and marketing, your own branding. So it's not for everybody, but if you are interested and willing to do that, I think certain jobs, certain skill sets lend themselves really well to, to gig work. Yeah. And I'm finding, I, I think that's a really valid point. Um, and, you know, I'm finding that a lot of gig workers get in trouble with their taxes, for example, or not oh. having health care and all the things that a company kind of takes care of. Uh, but on the other side, I'm starting to see a lot of new entrepreneurial ventures popping up to fill in that gap. Yes. So it, it'll be interesting, I think, to see how it all plays out. Um, I'm really, you know, th this is, I, I love this conversation. I feel like you and I could keep talking for hours. <laughs> I, I just love, um, you, you know, you, you just got so many, so much, so many great insights and I, I, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you, but I'm, I'm just curious, you know, as you think about um, Atlas Jobs, just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're headed with this company and, sure. and you know, what, what, what does the future kind of look like? Yeah, so our big thing is, back to what we said way back in the beginning, Rebecca, when we started, I do believe technology is here to try and make our lives simpler, right? And I think in the job process and finding opportunities, it's actually got way harder because the universe of job opportunities has increased. The complexity has got harder. But in many ways, our recruiting processes haven't changed in 40 years. We're still out there going, you need a four-year degree. <laughs> and... Many times you don't. Um, I read a statistic from the 110 org that by 30 years of age, 75% of African-Americans do not have a four-year degree. So that cuts them out a whole load of jobs. So what our technology tries to do is it tries to help companies really showcase their opportunities. Now, if you've ever tried to apply online for a job, you see a job that sounds interesting and you try and apply for it, the average online job application takes 51 clicks and there's a 92% abandonment rate, which is insane. But people just give up because it's just, it's too onerous. So our technology is all about trying to make it easier for people to find jobs. Being able to, we use, we're mobile centric because everyone's using the mobile device and we can see over 80% of the applications are coming in from the mobile device. And we are map-centric, so we deploy a map to help people find the job they want. So let's say you were a teacher looking for jobs. You could look at all jobs in a certain area, and you could think, well, you know, I could. that's a bit further, but I'll commute there because that's a reasonable commute route, whereas going east is a horrible commute or whatever. 
you can look at it and see what childcare is around me, what what other things, schools, hospitals, and so on. So you can make those decisions. If you're with a company and your husband is moving or your wife is moving, you can see what opportunities for you exist within your same company in those areas. So we're really all about helping the candidates, the people, see what their opportunities are. And one of our one of our customers, I think I can mention their name, Walmart. Um, nobody, no corporate, no company employs more people than Walmart. They really care about their people. One of the things that they have, I think it's fantastic. If you go into their system, and you can see um, an entry level position, say twenty three dollars an hour entry level position, they show you what that is annualized if you work a forty hour week. So it helps a young person coming in understand what this means, and then they have a career pathway. So you can see, well, I start here, but my next step would be a, a distribution manager position. And in order to get that, let's see what I need. Click. Okay, I need this and this. Okay, so I could start here, but in two or three years, I could be here. And what kind of education? Oh, Walmart can offer me, I can get a degree. I, so I can get a degree while I'm working. And this job, let me see where it is. Bang, on the map. Okay, so there's positions in that higher role near me. Where do I go next? And instead of getting, you're trying to get away from this average tenure of 2.8 years for the under 35s, showing them like you can have a pathway, you can have a career in this company and you don't have to be flipping every year, every two years. That's great. So, so Atlas Jobs as a, a white label company sells to a company like Walmart, since we've already mentioned them. And so you make your money by selling to, uh, to the, the companies that then use your software to provide uh, potential employees or, or prospecting employees, searching employees, uh, people who are searching for jobs yes. with a better experience of, of, of applying online. Yeah, to help, but to help them hire candidates. So we've got the tradi traditional applicant tracking functionality in the system as well. So we can help, you know, put out an offer. We can show you where you're getting bottlenecked in the process. And we've got, and this is back to the AI, right? We're looking at chat. And by the way, I think every company in the world needs to be looking at how can they use AI to improve their processes. So it's at that stage now where we can. Um, there's a few ways we can use it, and we, we do use it. One of the ways is nursing jobs, right? After the pandemic, I mean, who wanted to be a nurse? Yeah. Right? <laughs> those, those poor people, they put themselves on the line. Their lives were on the line every day, particularly when um, the Delta was going around, the first variant, which was so severe, it was killing people, you know, in quite large numbers. So after COVID, understandably, many nurses are, burnt out and finding nurses is hard and you can't work from home if you're a nurse you've got to be there on the job so one of our customers another one of our companies uh, pam health they they operate 100 clinicals uh, clinics and hospitals across the country but they were having a particular problem hiring nurses in a couple of locations so what we can do is we can do things like geofence a nursing school because you know somebody going into a nursing school is either a nurse or they know a nurse, or they're about to be a nurse. So when a nurse is sitting down, or they're sitting down having a coffee break, they're not looking at a job board, but they are looking at their social media. So now all of a sudden, we can drop an ad into their social media and say, hey, are you interested in a nursing job? And when they click, they get to see all the nursing jobs on a map located where they are, right? So it's really taking helping this generation coming through get access to the information in the way they understand and the way they use. So they are on social media, they understand a map, they can look at a map and see, oh, that's close to me versus, oh, hang on a minute, where is this? With Trying to get the information, and we are, that's this generation. They're used to getting information like this. They're used to video, they're used to mobile, they're used to maps. So that's really what we're trying to do is to help corporations really showcase their opportunities in the best possible way and move away from that 51 click application. You know, the recruiters don't need that. They need first name, last name. And then we know that, you know, Rebecca was interested in this job in this location on this day and time. 
and here's her email address. Yeah. And then you can follow up. That's great. I love it. I love it. I have to ask Joe, um, you know, we talked earlier about you have to get comfortable with failure. And, uh, you know, it's part of that entrepreneurial mindset. So I just have to ask, you know, have you experienced failure on the road to success? I know the answer to that. <laughs> 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 we'll bring up, yeah. <laughs> of course. And, 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 you know, what are your, you know, for, for someone out there who's thinking, well, I could never do that, or I'm, I'm, you know, I just don't know that I, I can deal with the failure. You know, what, what, what do you have to say for that? To them about about failure because if you were if you if you were in sales at any point in time you heard no oh, um, so um it's a good question isn't it I'll give you my first company because it's so long ago I think it's I don't want to speak too much of recent failure probably longer failure is yeah. less <laughs> it's more palatable to talk about failure <laughs> a long time ago. during my first company um we built out a new technology platform and we spent a year building it. And I had this dedicated team of people working in Philadelphia. And at night we were working with an outsourced Indian development team. And in the morning they'd come back in. So we had a 24 hour development cycle. We built out this beautiful product. We knew what we were doing. We knew the competitors. We knew how to disrupt that part of the market and get in. We had this fabulous tool. Couldn't sell it. So, <laughs> It's a pharmaceutical tool. It helped a pharmaceutical company take go from discovery all the way to marketed product. And the reason you can't sell it is because nobody wants to be the first customer on a new product, particularly if they're a pharmaceutical company. They're very, you know, there's a lot at stake and um, a lot of regulatory pressure from the FDA. So what do you do? So I'm, we were sitting there. We tried. We tried. We worked with this company, worked with that company. We competed in so many deals and we were told, you're the best solution, but we're going to go with this one because they've been doing it for 10 years and they got these other clients. So I'm almost at my wit's end. How do we break into this market? My sales team are despondent, right? So we came across this one company and uh, they were a mid-tier company and they looked at the technology and I got the same answer. You've got the best technology, but it's too risky. It's too risky for us. So I had a board meeting just coincidentally at the same time, and I sat down with my board members and I told them about this. And one of my board members had been the CEO of a pharmaceutical company previously. And he said, Joe, who's, who's on their board? Can you read? So I went to the computer. I read him out the names of the people on the board, and he didn't know any of them. So he said, keep going. And I read this one name, and he goes, I know him really well. And he owes me a favor. What, what role is he? He's the CEO. We got that deal. It changed everything around. We delivered a fantastic system for them. They were incredibly happy. They were happy to talk to everybody in the world. But all of a sudden, we had a client. So we went from this abject failure of like, oh, my God, we spent millions of dollars on this product and we cannot sell it, to the thing just flew off the shelf. We took that next year, we took the first seven deals, major corporations just came and flocked to our product. It totally transformed the company. And later that year, a large corporation came in and acquired me. Yeah. You know, that that's really impressive. I mean, it's a reminder back to the, the importance of networking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the other thing that, that I hear in that is that failure causes you to have to be creative. And, you know, if everything comes easy, um, we don't have to look to innovative or different or creative means to get things done. So um, I think there, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a couple of really great lessons in there. And, uh, and I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I, I, like I said, I could talk for, for hours because I'm having such a good time, but I, I know you've got work to do. I do always end my podcast by asking my guests if they had, because a lot of the listeners are aspiring uh, or young entrepreneurs. If, if you had one piece of advice um, for our listeners about entrepreneurship or being an entrepreneur or, or something related to your journey, what would that be? I think, you know, it really goes back to that story that I just told, right? You could look at that and say, you know, you could say, yeah, you found a way around that. 
but I got bloody lucky, right? Two couple of things happened. One is there was a board meeting around the same time I was in the middle of that deal. Timing, it did, timing. <laughs> it did not occur to me to make that call to that investor ahead of, you know, it, it was purely because I'd mentioned it at the board meeting. And the second part is the network. The call that he made to the CEO was, your company is looking at a piece of software where I'm on the board of, and I'm here to tell you that if your company likes that software, they should go with it because I know this company and they will deliver. And that was what it took because we were like the best solution, but you couldn't trust, nobody knew us. So I think, you know, for these young entrepreneurs, find people who extend you, find people who can help you, help you with these these connections. Um, it's so important. I can see it right now. I'm on the board of a cybersecurity company. We've got fabulous technology. But man, again, it's risky buying a new cybersecurity technology. The reason it's so good is because it, it is new. It uses new techniques. And so many of the other cyber products are like 10 years old. But how do you break in, right? And I can already see the power of our network on the board is helping this company break in. And then you've got to, for your young entrepreneurs, once you get those connections, you've got to deliver, right? If you <laughs> if somebody helps you get a connection, you there is no plan B. You have to deliver and you have to delight them. Um, and then you will succeed. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I'm glad you added that last bit onto it because what happens is your board member was putting his reputation on the line. And so your relationship with your board member was on the line and uh, you, you have to deliver. So the great, great advice from Dr. Joe Weber, who's been on this journey for a few years and, and learned a thing or two. And I've, I've loved this conversation today. It's been great. If our listeners would like to connect with you or find out more about you and what you do, where, where can they go for that? So just come into the office. I'll buy them a coffee. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, back to those days when we actually saw each other, right? <laughs> well, I'm in an office, right? I'm back. But unfortunately, my company is quite spatially separated. So we're not all in. But I do miss that. I used to have a previous company. I was just down the road. I had this wonderful open plan office. It is fabulous. Um, for, we let everybody buy whatever they wanted at Starbucks. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> um, I do miss those days. But uh yeah, I, I love being back in the office. But yeah, um, you know, atlasjobs.com. I'm Joe, J-O, at atlasjobs.com. That's probably the easiest way to find me and remember the name. Dr. Joe, thank you. I had a great time today. Likewise. Thank you, Rebecca. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.